Folks, I've got a good one for you this morning. We're going to be talking about Daniel, and I'm going to be reading the first chapter, and it is exciting. It's about four guys. Now, let me ask you a question here. How many young men do we have here between the ages of about 13 and 17? Hands up. All right, well, this is going to be for you to pay particular attention to because this even talks about, and I think it's the Bible's first three-year full-ride scholarship. It ends with a, well, the ride is from Jerusalem to Babylon, but anyways. Uh, and it also talks about a test. And of course, there's no testimony without a test. So uh, I'm going to read for you the first chapter of Daniel and just sort of imagine the imagery here of what these four men who are believed to be about 15 years old uh, might have gone through. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration of the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But David made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice of food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over them, Please, test your servants for ten days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and the deal with your servants and deal rather with, with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were able to drink and kept on giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And at the end of the days in which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them not one, not one, was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conquerors, conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. The next passage I'm going to read for you is from Ephesians. And just a few verses from 17 to 24. See if you can catch the parallel between these passages. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluding them from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former matter of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in your spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Thank you, Peter. As Peter indicated, we are kicking off this morning a series on, on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And for those of you who were raised in church or Sunday school, perhaps, uh, and for some of you, you're going way back when you heard stories about Daniel on a, a, a flannel graph uh, kind of version of it. And that's a great way to learn when you're a kid, but we realize that the challenges of this book address some of the challenges that we face as we are more and more living in a culture and society which operates under different values than those that Jesus taught. And we find it difficult on occasion to know where to draw the line. How much do we become a part of the society and how much do we differentiate ourselves from the larger society? And so as we are looking at this morning, just read, we are looking at Daniel chapter 1. And, and the book can be understood in terms of three movements. And, and the first of which opens up at the very beginning. It tells us, and we understand from history, we're looking at a period of time around 605 B.C. 
And, and it's amazing that we know that because we realize the Bible is also substantiated by secular history. And, and, and in 605, and perhaps you've heard the name before, Nebuchadnezzar, he ruled in Babylon, which would be located in modern-day Iraq. And Nebuchadnezzar decided to conquer Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem. And then the chapter opens up indicating who the king was at that particular time. And, and it's helping us to understand the time period. But it indicates that Nebuchadnezzar came to completely decimate and overtake the city of Jerusalem and also the surrounding nation known as Judah. And in doing so, they destroyed the temple and plundered its most sacred articles. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a strategic guy. And here's one of the things that made him successful. When he would go into a major metropolitan ancient city, instead of just destroying the city and enslaving everybody, he gave his commanders these instructions. Go into the city, arrest and take captive all the royal family. The best of the brightest. Because the royal family were generally considered the most educated. They also took hostage some of the finest young men of noble and, and royal lineage. And it describes these young men who got taken out, uh, taken hostage out of the nation of Judah and taken back to Babylon as men without physical defects. Now, depending on your age category, this might be Richard Gere, Kevin Costner, Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, or Zac Ephraim. And I think that should cover the gambit here. Not only says were they the most handsome men, but they were also extremely intelligent. They had an aptitude for all kinds of learning. And so the directive was to go into the city and take captive the best and the brightest and bring them to Babylon. Tragically, we are seeing a similar type thing take place in Ukraine right now. People are being loaded onto buses and instead of heading to Poland are being taken into Russia and are forced to learn a new language and a new culture. Now, as is indicated earlier, estimates are that Daniel was in that range of 13 to 17 when these events transpire. He's basically lost everything. His homeland was destroyed. And everything that was near and dear to him and familiar was taken away with no promise of return. And most likely because he served in the court of the king, even at the age of 13 to 17, he would have been made a eunuch. Not a detail that we tell in the Sunday school version of the story. And Daniel would end up staying in Babylon for 65 years. So in 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar sends his armies into the city of Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem, goes to the temple, the ancient temple of Solomon, pretty well destroys the temple and loots it, takes all the things that are valuable and brings them to Babylon. He brings with him Israel's best and brightest. And we're given the names of only four men who are part of the entourage that were captured and taken to Babylon. One of them is Daniel and the other is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not only does Nebuchadnezzar have the habit of importing the prettiest and the smartest people in the world into his capital city, he would put them in a training program. He would strip away all of their cultures and replace them with Babylonian culture. It tells us in the second movement, which unfolds in verse 5, the king, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, part of his training program, assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. This is top shelf stuff. Like, wow. This is the food we get to eat while we're here. 
But it tells us further down in verse 8, but Daniel resolved, and sorry for the typo on this slide here, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official, Aspenaz, for permission not to defile himself in his way. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why Daniel refused to eat the food or drink the wine. And one of the theories is that the wine and food would have been offered to one of them, previously offered to one of the many Babylonian gods, and to eat this food would be acknowledging that those gods exist. So by eating this, be saying these are real gods. And so we realize this tension for Jewish people of eating meat that previously offered to idols spills over into the New Testament. Another explanation is that Daniel is Jewish, and he did not know whether the food that he was asked to eat was kosher. If the meat was not kosher, it meant Daniel would be violating the Mosaic law and the teachings of Moses. Either way, it tells us in verse 8 that Daniel resolved in the midst of this difficult situation, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel made up his mind before he knew how the story ended. And we see this in part, even though we, it's hard for us to comprehend what it may be like for a teenager far from home, surrounded by the most powerful people in the world. And by saying no, he's essentially going to risk his life. And Daniel here indicates he can't defile himself. He doesn't want to eat the carnivore diet of all that meat. And he does not want a university keg party with all the alcohol he could drink at every meal. And so he asked the chief official for permission. We don't want to eat this food and drink this wine. And I know this is going to be a problem, but we just don't want to do it. Now, Ashpenaz understood what was being said here because this would be a total insult to Nebuchadnezzar and his entire household. But he also knew something else. Nebuchadnezzar was not the kind of leader who cut people a lot of slack. If we had the time to look over in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, a puppet king named Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar captured Zedekiah and his family and his sons, and he killed his sons right in front of Zedekiah's eyes. And then, the Bible tells us, he had Zedekiah's eyes put out, so the last thing that he would see was his sons being killed. Another detail that's often omitted in the Sunday school version of the story. And so, Abbas wasn't kidding when he said Nebuchadnezzar would have his head if this would turn out poorly. Then, as it continues on, verse 9 opens up. Now, God. Now, God. And here's the part of the story that, that somehow... Daniel knew to factor in. It's called the now God part. You know, the book, the Bible, is a book about God. And Daniel is no exception. And while the narrator 
frequently zooms in his camera and, and focuses on the, da- the adventures of Daniel and his friends, he pulls back frequently enough to remind us that there is one working behind the scenes who is the true story, hero of the story. And this message is implicit in success Daniel and his friends experience with their dietary experiment. You know, in our modern diet-crazed culture, one might be tempted to conclude that Daniel was healthier because he ate only celery and broccoli. And the ancient narrator intends us to see that he was healthy in spite of this choice. Because what happens from... From this point on the story, because of Daniel's resolve, because he had made up his mind, his decision to draw a line in the sand and say, I want to only do the things that honor God. It continues on. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Now, Daniel, he doesn't realize this, but he realizes that Asbunaz is kind of leaning into these guys. Asbunaz is kind of treating these guys special. And he does not know that God has done something behind the scenes. Just like we don't always understand what God is doing in the larger picture of the story of our lives. And so Daniel uses a strategy. He takes the angle. He says, let's do this before and after analysis. Give us 10 days with vegetables in the water and, and see if in comparison at the end of 10 days that we don't look better than the other guys. Maybe even promise a money-back guarantee or a set of Ginshu steak knives if they would follow through. I don't know. The word vegetables here in verse 12, Zorah, Beth Moore in her commentary says it literally meant everything that grows from sown seed. So that would not just be vegetables, but it would include fruits, grains, and breads that were made from whole grain. Those would be included in this particular diet. For some reason, the official relented. And after 10 days, Daniel and his three friends, who said that they were, it indicates they were so vigorous and robot, robust compared to those who were eating food from the table of the king in the form of meat and wine. The chief official decides in the end to put the entire group on diet of vegetables and water. Now, I'm not sure if that would have made Daniel and his three friends the most popular group and at that particular school system. This is not a call to vegetarianism. Something much more. And if you're a vegetarian, that's fabulous. But there are deeper issues that are going on here. So the third movement starts in verse 17 after Daniel's resolution. It says, God gave these four men all kinds of knowledge and understanding about literature and and learning that they knew nothing about before going to Babylon. The result was when they were brought at the end of three years to the king, the king couldn't find anyone that equaled Daniel and his three friends. God gave them a supernatural ability to rise and to be the cream of the crop because God was getting them in a position for the rest of the book of Daniel, which we will see unfold over the next few weeks. What these young men had no idea of is about the situation is about to get worse. They're going to need more resolve as they begin to encounter some of the courageous decisions that are in front of them. 
But this is how this story ends in chapter 1. For the four men, God gave them knowledge and understanding, all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God honored their decision when they honored God. And the conclusion is the king, Nebuchadnezzar, talked with them and found no one equal to Daniel and his three friends. And this was the beginning of a journey that would wound up making all kinds of differences in the nation of Israel. The book of Daniel, the lion's den thing, the fiery furnace thing, and maybe you've heard some of those stories. But it all begins with this amazing story that happens with Nebuchadnezzar, and it started here with a simple decision to honor God in all one's decision-making. The truth is, we don't know what hangs in the balance of our decisions. We can't accurately predict outcomes. But, and this is a big but, we know with certainty that there are outcomes associated with each of our decisions, even the small ones. If Daniel had not made this decision, we wouldn't be telling this story. There would be a missing book in the Bible called Daniel. It wouldn't be there. Everything, more than we could imagine, hung or hinged on this decision, whether or not to eat the meat and drink the wine. The fact that he said no, and God said, this is a defining moment. I'm going to direct your entire future by this decision. I have discovered in my own life and talking to other people, you might be surprised by the number of people who've told me, you know, Dave, when I made an ethical decision, a moral decision, it turned out to be a directional decision. Some have told me that God has made, became very real to them. Not over praying, God, show me your will for my life, but in a moment of temptation, a moment of trial, a moment of tension, where they decided in an area of their lives, this is where I draw the line. This is as far as I'm willing to go. And they could look back and, and retrace their life, and they say, that's the decision that God used to, to redirect my career, my academic pursuits, my friendships. I would have never met my wife. I look back. It wasn't an ethical decision. It wasn't a moral decision. It turned out to be a directional decision. Daniel had no idea what hung in the balance of this decision. But notice this verse from Proverbs summarizes this concept. Solomon says this, the integrity, that it's to do the right thing, of the upright, the people who are trying to do the right thing, the integrity of the upright guides them. Not just protects them, but guides them. And here's the thing. Your decisions determine your story. The story of your life. We see this in Daniel's life. His decisions decide, determine his story. And for the most part, many of our, if, if not our, our, our greatest Regrets in life would have been avoided if we had lived out according to our convictions, if we had chosen to honor God in that particular moment. By virtue of being in ministry for over 40 years, I've had a front row view of humanity. I have walked into hospital rooms where a young couple is holding a stillborn child in their arms. 
I have performed lots of weddings and presided over numerous funerals, including for a three-month-old son, for a 40-year-old man who took his own life. I've talked with people about end-of-life matters. I've also had conversations with people who shared with me some of the deepest regrets of their lives. You know, regrets are not a one-size-fits-all. Like men's shirts, they come in small, medium, large, extra-large, XXL, and even better, bigger. I've heard regrets along the lines of people who shared private thoughts with me. When I was in school, I started having too much fun, and before long, I got kicked out. Now I'm 50, and not getting that degree has haunted me ever since. I can remember my father warning me that our family was full of alcoholics, but I can, was convinced that I had my drinking under control. I would give up my legs and arms to roll back life to the day I made the decision to have that first drink. I kept telling myself that I was working hard so that we'd have the kind of income we needed to keep my wife and children and have a comfortable life. Then one day, my son headed off to university, and I realized that I hardly knew him. I knew the money wasn't mine, but I keep telling myself it really wasn't stealing. I was just borrowing money from one account and putting it temporarily into another. It would get me through a tight spot. And then the market went south, and I had no way to recover, and now they call me a crook. I guess I felt bored with our marriage. And she was everything I wish mine was, so I... You know, if I hadn't been so frustrated and tired, I, I, I might have. If only I had told him how sorry I was. I was too bullheaded, too angry, too drunk, too proud, and so I... I doubt there's any more debilitating program for people than the problem... Or problem, the problem of regrets, because regrets can paralyze us. Let's acknowledge it is impossible to live a regret-free life. We need to accept inevitability of regrets, but we can reduce the frequency. And dealing with our regrets later in life as we look back, Dealing with our regrets comes down to having the courage to choose. It's a spiritual choice and a mental choice. It's a spiritual choice to ask for God's forgiveness. It's your mental choice to dwell on past opportunities. Whether you continue to feed your regret is up to you. The pages of Scripture indicate that God wants to redeem your choices. He doesn't want you to settle for a sack full of mistakes and regrets. By choosing to honor God in all of your decision-making, what you discover is that it will make you better and it will make you better at life. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you know the human heart. You know the lives represented in this room and all the regrets that are a part of them. You know all the painful decisions 
have led to anguish. All of that, God, you saw clearly. And God, you desire to do away with all of that on the cross. So I would pray that you would help us as a group of men and women as we struggle with life. Help us to receive your forgiveness, a new beginning, a life liberated from regret. And we recognize this is the freedom that we have through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.